Sound good? Can you hear me? Okay, good. Okay, Luke, uh, Luke, 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 Luke. So, do you guys know, uh, this thing is sliding down. Oh, well. You ever see those articles uh, in magazines like uh, Inc., Psychology Today, and they're, and they're sort of like, you've got this problem, and here's 10 things you can do to fix it. You ever see those? Okay. Uh, I got a good one today, and it has a little punchline. The, the, the title of the article is Perfectionist? Question mark. 10 ways to stop being your own worst enemy. Okay. Anybody interested in hearing the 10 ways you can stop being your own? Thank you, Marilyn. There's one honest person in the, in the room. Two. All right, Tim, too. So the, the point is, when you're a perfectionist, uh, you're your own worst enemy, right? So here's the 10 ways. Now, I want you to pay close attention, because there's a, there's a point in introducing the talk with an article that you didn't write. Okay, you guys didn't get that. All right. Create, this, uh, number one way to overcome your perfectionistic tendencies, create more realistic personal goals and expectations. I don't, yeah, I don't want to mock that. that. That would be a good idea. Challenge your inner critic and dispute negative thoughts. The bar is starting to move up here. I just want you to know. All right? <laughs> Remember, you're a perfectionist. All right? Prioritize self-care and invest in yourself. Hey, that's, that's, that's sound advice. Practice saying no more often. You, you like look in the mirror and just say no. No. Driving the car, no. Number five, remember that time off is not time wasted. That's a good, that's a good thing. Number six, trust that it will all get done in time. Okay. The bar is moving up. Schedule breaks and recharge. I mean, all the perfectionists in here are just starting to sweat. Eight, take a vacation. No, take a weekend vacation and get away. Which is pretty hard when you're a perfectionist because you're usually working all weekend. Number nine, stop wasting your time by multitasking. Now, the bar is, is reaching Olympic levels now. Number ten, practice not holding others to your same standard. Or in other words, just walk on water. Right? right? If you're a perfectionist... That's what, that's what perfectionists do. Now, I want you to notice something. If you're a perfectionist, you are already your own worst enemy, and nine of the ten prescriptions to stop being a perfectionist put more pressure on you. Every one of these is, like, just pick one. Practice saying no more often. Let me restate it. You practice saying no more often. I mean, do you get the point? Every one of these is you create more realistic goals and expectations. You challenge your inner critic and dispute negative thoughts. These are all really, really great ideas. And if we did these, it would make a, surely it would make a difference in your life if you're a perfectionist. But there was only one of these that, had, that didn't depend on you. That's one of the things about our approach to life a lot of times is we forget that we, if we're our, our already our own worst enemy, I can't be my own ally if I'm my own worst enemy. That I, that there has to be some resources outside me that are part of the solution. And these 10 don't offer you anything like that. So I want to look at a story uh, over the, over the course of Lent, we're going to kind of take a, a general theme of making space for God. Okay, how do we make space for God in our lives? I want to sh- take you to a story um, where there was a whole group of people gathered together that, that were their own worst enemy. And Jesus came and sat among them. And he, he, he said something and, and did something that really offered them the possibility of how do you stop, an answer to the question, how do you stop being your own worst enemy? And it's in Luke chapter 4. It's, it's, it's really a part of the book of Luke that basically explains Jesus' whole life, what he was all about. 
So if, if you have a Bible with you, uh, you can open it to Luke chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, uh, if you look under the chair seat in front of you, there's a, a little ledge there, a little shelf, and there are paperback Bibles here. They're loaners, uh, although if you want one, you're, you're free to take one home with you. If you know somebody that wants a Bible, take it and uh, give it to them. And you could even say you gave it to them, you know, like Elaine and the big salad. Thank you. Somebody, somebody remembers that. I know it was 25 years ago, but it was a funny line back then. Okay, Luke 4, verse 14. That was good, wasn't it, Mary? I didn't, most of the people just didn't. They're not Seinfeld fans, so they just missed it. Okay, Jesus returned to Galilee and the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written. And he's going to read from uh, Isaiah 61. It's like one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, or the year of Jubilee. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. This is what, when someone was going to teach in the synagogue, this is what they did. They'd read from the text, and then they 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 would explain it. It says, he sat down, and the eyes of Everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And this is like, mic drop, boom, right? That was the message, okay? He read the passage. That's the message. Wouldn't it be nice if you got a message that short around here? (laughs) Not a chance. (laughs) I'm not Jesus, right? (laughs) I, I, can't, I can't be that succinct. But he, he drops the mic. Everyone is like, ooh, whoa. Now, the, you know, just for a second, we're reading the story. If you've read the book of Luke up to this point, it describes the life of Jesus and how just before this scene, he is, uh, he, he's baptized by John. And the Holy Spirit comes down on him in a visible way. And God speaks from heaven. Everyone hears it. Ooh. Then he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. He, he is tempted by the devil. And it says he goes out in the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit. And he comes back into Galilee and the surrounding areas. And the power of the Spirit. He preaches and miracles start happening. I mean, everybody's talking about Jesus, the prophet. And then he comes into his hometown. And into his hometown synagogue where he grew up. And with all that as the backdrop, and everybody's talking about him, he reads this passage and he says, today, this that everyone's been waiting for, what we've all been looking for, it is fulfilled in your hearing. So basically he's saying, so what are you going to do now? Verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And you'll see that word, amazed, that it, when you read the Gospels, everything Jesus did amazed people. He, just, he would say things and people would just go, oh, oh my gosh, where did he get this wisdom? This is so amazing. And all those lines you know, that, that we write and put on cards and, and stick them on our refrigerator or on our windows, that, on bumper stickers, we repeat them. All these amazing lines. They came out of Jesus' mouth. He's in this synagogue. And something has happened to him. They knew he was unique. But all of a sudden, everywhere he goes, like God is showing up. And things that are happening are so amazing that no one can even get their head around it. And now he's in the synagogue and he makes this statement that stuns them. And so they speak well of him. They're amazed. Then things start to, to shift. The mood shifts right here. Now, there's four phrases as we read through this that I'm, I'm going to use to unpack this story here and to talk about like when we're, when we're our, own, our own worst enemy, how do you deal with that? You're, you're going to start see, to see here in this story 
this group of people in the synagogue, pious people, people who were faithful to God, people who wanted you know, to, to, to have the kind of life that they knew they were made for. These were good people, but all of a sudden you're going to start seeing out of these good people something emerged that's kind of ugly, and it's in all of us. This whole group of people who are piously reading Scripture and praying and asking God to send the Messiah, when the Messiah shows up, they turn on Him. Sadly, they turn on Him. And they become their own worst enemy. So, they say, isn't this, isn't this guy that just dropped the mic, isn't he Joseph's son? Now, that's a phrase that if you read the Gospels, Jesus was considered illegitimate because Mary was pregnant before Joseph married her. In a, in a small town, in a community like Israel, that stigma of that is going to follow you your whole life. So all of a sudden, everyone's amazed, and then they start going, well, let's look at this guy a little closer here. He says he's the Messiah, but isn't he like an illegitimate kid? Right? That's their first objection here. There's a couple we'll see here. Then Jesus says to them, verse 23, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. There was, Capernaum was a nearby town. Jesus hadn't done any miracles in anything in his hometown yet. He just came into town on the Sabbath to do this little synagogue gig. I tell you the truth, he continued. So he answers to them. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So, second phrase is Jesus says, I tell you the truth. So the, I'm sorry, third phrase, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. So the first one was, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Second one was, isn't this Joseph's son? Third phrase that, that, that you need to take note of is, I tell you the truth. So Jesus is making a point to them in response to what they said. Then, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, like they're pushing him out of the town. They took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now this isn't the last time he comes to his hometown. He comes back here over and over and over. But this is the first time after his, his whole ministry, the purpose for his life has begun, that he comes to his hometown and this is how he's treated. So, let's look at these four lines for a second. Just unpack them. They're real simple. But, but they point to something that offers us a lesson about our lives and making space for God in our lives. So, the first, first line was, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, it's hard for us to, to get a sense of this, but this is incredibly dramatic. The passage he read was one of the most treasured passages that the Jewish people had, especially at that time in their history. They, remember, Israel was occupied, they'd been conquered and occupied by the Romans. And so they were subjugated. And, and throughout their whole history, God had said to them, when you're subjugated, it's because you've been unfaithful, because I've made you to be free. I've made you to only be under my authority directly, not under the authority of some oppressive king or oppressive regime. Because all the pagan world around them was ruled in the same way. And God said, I have something better for you. And actually, I have something better for them too, but I'm going to show the world what it's like to be free and to live under my authority if they choose to, because I'm, I'm going to make a covenant with you, an agreement with you, that is the model for what I want to show all the, the nations around you. I'm going to place you in, this, in the middle of the crossroads of the known world so everybody can see you. You're going to be like a, a, a billboard for me. And that, that the love I show you, I want to show them. 
But at this point in their history, they are conquered people. And, and they're hoping, God, are you ever going to set us free? And, and what had happened is over time, the prophets, starting with back in the book of Genesis, from Abraham, all the way through prophets like Moses and David and the major and minor prophets, they all were inspired by God to speak of a time when a great leader would arise that God would be with who was called the Messiah. And that leader would do all these amazing things and it, he would bring in the fulfillment of all the hopes that Israel had, not only for them, but for the whole world. And this was one of the key passages in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant that the Jewish people had that just summarized what the Messiah was going to do and how it was going to change things and, and how he, would, he was going to right every wrong. But there were three things. And, they, and they, another way that they called it, another term they used to, to describe it was the year of Jubilee. How many of you guys have heard that? Year of Jubilee, okay. And it's kind of a, a, a phrase that's entered our vocabulary. And it meant a really you know, good times, the year of Jubilee. But to the Jews, there were, there were three really specific outcomes when the year of Jubilee. Because in the law, under the Old Covenant, God said every 50 years... Every 50 years, there's this time of jubilee. And there were, there were other provisions, but the main three provisions were, every 50 years, every debt had to be canceled. Every servant had to be set free. And all the property that people had forfeited had to be returned to them. So it was, a, it was a transformational moment. Do you understand, Do you understand what would happen right now if, if all of a sudden, because God said so, everybody's debts were canceled? Now that would, that would mean a lot of good things to, for us to have mortgages, but it would also mean the bank suddenly <laughs> didn't have all this money, Right? And all of us who'd put money in the banks, I mean, this would be, how do you sort all this out? Secondly, all the people who had become servants because they owed money, servants or slaves that were freed, well, that would be an economic boon for them. But the people that they worked for suddenly, wow, that changes things for them. So third thing, all the property that had been forfeited was given back to the people who screwed up. So imagine all the pawn shops. You could go back into the pawn shop and get all the stuff that, that you sold, right? The next day. I mean, there were probably people who go, okay, it's one day to Jubilee. I'm going to go sell my skill saw. <laughs> I'm going to get like 35 bucks for it. Then I'm going to go back the next day and say, give me that skill saw back. It's Jubilee. The, and, and God warned them. He said, he, he told them, don't do that, number one. And number two, you that are holding those forfeited items, you need to be sure you give them back. Because this is a sign of the forgiveness that I want to, to be practiced throughout the world. And it's, it's great. It's totally by grace. Because you understand, when you forfeit something because of a debt, that means you took some money, you didn't pay it back, you lost the collateral that secured your debt. When, when, if I loaned someone some money and they agreed that they had some, something that they owned would be collateral for them paying me back and then they didn't pay me back and I could take that collateral, it would be a bummer to have to give it up. But it would be good for the person right, who received it. But what God was saying was, the, the only way it worked was God said, I'm going to make everybody whole. So the people who had to give back the collateral, the, the people who forfeited it, lost, God would make them whole. He said, if you practice life this way, I will take care of you. But I want, I want to show those people that, that a debt doesn't have to ruin your life. Right? And so... God said, this, this the only comes along every 50 years. So for most people, you're only going to experience it maybe one time in your life. Maybe twice. But usually, the first time you experience it, if, if you're a kid, you know, you haven't like 
rung up a bunch of debt with the lo- local loan shark. And so it's usually something that you get the benefit of as an adult. But it's a, it, it, now, there's, there's, there's speculation and argument among scholars about whether Israel practiced that very much. Because it was a pretty radical idea. If you're going to forgive people, you've got to believe that God's going to take care of you. And a lot of times that's why we don't forgive people. Because we don't believe that God will take care of us. And we want to keep making that person pay. Because that's the only way we feel better. And if we let them off the hook, then who's going to make me feel better? And if we don't believe that God can be there to do that, then we won't let them off the hook. And so this, this whole equation requires, this whole way of life that Jubilee describes requires a real faith in God that's a, that's a difference-making part of your life. Not just sort of like go to Sunday kind of part of your life. Go to church on Sunday. The rest of the you know, week, it doesn't really matter. God's just something, somebody you visit on the weekend. Maybe. So, Jesus was saying, I'm ushering in a perpetual jubilee, and more, because he added to it, that Isaiah added to it, what the old covenant didn't, was the blind will see, healing. The deaf will hear, the lame will walk. So it's not just about debts being canceled, property being returned, servants being freed. It's like, it's this comprehensive, crazy thing. This, it's, the, it's the golden era. It's like when the phrase does it get any better than this, becomes obsolete. You ever have one of those moments where you go, like Kathy and I were down in Florida last week, and we got this Airbnb, you know what Airbnb is, with a pool, our own entrance into this really nice house, on a canal in Florida, in Fort Lauderdale, for $47 a night. I pulled out the phrase, does it get any better than this? When the Jubilee comes, people stop using that phrase because it just keeps getting better. That's what Jesus was saying. This was like a mind-boggling moment. These people are hearing this, but then they look at Jesus, and this is where they go, hold on, <laughs> we know this guy, right? I mean, he, he pulled my sister's pigtail. I think Jesus did stuff like that. I think that's, you know, kids do that. I think... Jesus was a normal kid, just like other kids are. I don't think he did evil things, like I did. (laughs) But he was immature. He grew. The Bible says he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. He was a person, a real person. I think they looked at him, and when they said, isn't this Jesus' son? This This is where the fact that we're our own worst enemy starts to emerge, because Two things, there were two objections in this, and Jesus spoke to both of them. The first thing they said is, Jesus, you just don't measure up to what we think the Messiah is going to look like. Sorry. You know, you're Joseph's son, we know your story. And, and people always stumble over the particularity of the gospel. Meaning, you can only know God really through Jesus? Through this person, Jesus? It's just a stumbling block, it's just hard. It was hard back then, it's hard now. But what Jesus says is, I'm the fulfillment of this narrative in your lives that nothing else has been able to fulfill. And see, the the, the truth is, all religions have a measure of truth in them. They have a narrative that promises certain things, but none of them can fulfill it. The Old Testament couldn't fulfill all of its promises until Jesus came along. And if you look at all the stories of all the narratives of, of world faiths, there's, there's enough truth in it that it offers you something to chew on and something to have hope in, but it never is able to offer the payoff, the full realization. And so Jesus was a challenge to them like he is to us today. And these prophets said that the Messiah would be this anointed one. Because that's what the, the word means. And, it, and in their experience, it meant the Spirit of God was on this person in an unprecedented way, to an unprecedented degree. And that he was going to do things that would be 
like what God would do if God was there. Hence, like Isaiah earlier in, in his book said that Jesus, whom we, you know, when we celebrate his birth at Christmas, he is Emmanuel, God with us. That, that you see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in. He's, he, that this person is, is absolutely unique, which is what you know, Jesus was saying. And so they said, is this Joseph's son? So they said, you don't measure up to our expectations, which they objected to this particularity of the gospel in Christ. And secondly, they're saying to him, okay, let's grant that you're the Messiah. Prove it. Prove it. Prove it to us. And you see what happened, what, what, what shows there? This is, a, this is another part of us becoming our own worst enemy is we become the judge. We become the person that's in control. Like, okay, we're God. You've got to prove it to us. You've got to meet our expectations and our standards. Now, there's, there's a part of that that's valid. But there's an attitude in it. See, we're supposed to, like, you know, I've said this guy, to you guys before. I took the little amen thing off because I feel like it, you guys are just not an amen crowd. We're never going to become an amen crowd until we get more African-Americans in here. Maybe we'll become more of an amen crowd then. But amen was a phrase that, that was meaningful in synagogues because what it meant was the, the, the mature in the synagogue, when they heard someone expound on the truth in a way that was consistent with the truth, they would say, amen. Lord, let it be so. And what that was, is that was a sign to all the other people to say, okay, this passes muster. These people, you know, the mature among us are saying, this is something we should believe in. So they were, they were taught in the beginning to practice discernment. To not just be like little birds, uh, just your mouth is open, drop anything in it. You know, I don't know about you, I don't want anybody dropping a worm in my mouth. Right? It's a, it's a cute little picture if you're a bird. But if you're a human being, it's not good. You're supposed to be practicing discernment as you listen to people who stand up in church and teach. You're not just supposed to be a, a little bird in the nest, ah, drop the worm in my mouth, because you might get a worm in your mouth. You know, a, a theological worm, so to speak. And I don't know what that drink is. Is it tequila that you drop the worm in? Is that right? I don't, sorry. Is that tequila? Thank you, Jay. I, you, you just heard that. Okay, thank you. I don't know how putting a worm in a drink ever became popular. But stuff gets taught in church all the time. That is crazy. And you're supposed to be practicing discernment. They were practicing a certain level of discernment, but they had this attitude is, okay, you've done all these things that no one can explain, but ultimately we're still the boss. It was this attitude of control and when we're our own worst enemy, we exercise that at all the wrong times. Do you understand? We exercise control. And the one person we can't exercise control before is God. That's the worst place to exercise control. That's the worst place to pull the card out. They were doing that. So, they doubled down on control when they should have chosen vulnerability. They doubled down on control when they should have chosen vulnerability. And then the next phrase is where, this is where Jesus calls them, and he says, I tell you the truth. And it's real simple what he says here. He reminds them of two familiar stories. Now, Elijah and Elijah were two of the most famous prophets in the Old Testament. And, but they were prophetic leaders in Israel's history during a really dark time in Israel's history where the, the people were apostate. The people were not following God. They were into the worst stuff. They were sacrificing their children to idols. They were practicing prostitution in the temple. They were worshiping all kinds of false gods. They were just doing, they were in unjust. They took, they, you know, they would they would lend money at these exorbitant interest rates, and then when people couldn't pay it because it was hard times, they would seize their homes. And, you know, the, 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 the proverbial pay gap was, was huge. All kinds of wrong things were going on in Israel. So that was a bad time. 
during Israel's history. It was, it was not when their better angels were on their shoulders. And Jesus reminds them, he says, God showed mercy to this widow in Sidon. And Sidon was a part, was a nation near Israel that was one of Israel's worst enemies. And then he, he reminds them that God showed his mercy to the soldier, Naaman, who was working for the king of Syria. Again, one of Israel's most uh, hardcore enemies. He's basically saying, God showed mercy to pagans, your enemies, because they were open to receiving his mercy. And none of you during that time were open. God wanted to show you his mercy, and you pushed him away. Even your widows and your lepers who are the most vulnerable people. He said, you didn't want what God had. And so the point of this story is that God, when Jesus came in and said, this passage that I just read is fulfilled in your hearing today. He was saying, God is always ready to pour out his mercy in Jesus' name. He's always ready. It's, it's a perpetual jubilee because Jesus came. Today, now. But their hearts were hard. But this is the, tr- the tricky part of this. They didn't see it. They didn't see it. That's, which is part of the problem of being your own worst enemy and, and getting advice that tells you to do certain things to try to correct being your own worst enemy by being perfectionistic. But it all, if it all depends on you, it's not likely you're going to be able to correct that tendency. And so, how did the people respond when Jesus told them? He just told them the truth. Now, the jury's out. You may look at that, and some people could read this passage and say, I think Jesus was asking way too much. I think, he'd like, I think he'd, he'd, he made some unwarranted assumptions about these people. These people are in the synagogue. They, these people are faithful people. That area of Israel was, was particularly pious. How on earth could he... I think Jesus was being a little judgmental. I think he was being a little harsh here. When he said this to them, the jury's out. And so, what happens next? This is the fourth phrase. It says, the people were furious. When he told them, you're your own worst enemy... You're acting like the people. When, the way you're responding to me is you're acting like the people did during one of the worst times in, your nation, in our nation's history. You're not responding to a prophet and someone who's more than a prophet. You're not welcoming him just like your forefathers did. Now, this is one of the things that, that, that this is one of the sort of strange legacies of the Jewish people is. They had this history of being God's people and God kept revisiting them over and over and over and over. And the strange thing about their history is every time he visited them, they rejected him over and over and over and over and over. Does that feel familiar? Do you look at your own life and feel like God keeps showing up and helping me and I keep being my own worst enemy half the time and messing it up? But God was faithful. And he's still faithful. But Jesus is appealing to them. He's saying, you guys are just as helpless as Naaman the Syrian who had leprosy and the widow during a time of famine. Because you know what happens when times get hard? Everybody gets tighter with their resources. And you've got to take care of me and mine. Well, when you're a widow, who takes care of you? That's the worst person to be in a time of need. Because you don't have any family and anybody to take care of you. And so you trust in the mercy of God working through people to take care of you. Well, in a time when nobody believes in God and everybody's going their own way, you're the person that's at the low end of the totem pole. But God showed His mercy that He cared about those people. Even among the Sidonians and the Syrians, He cared about those people. And he cared about his people, but his people wouldn't admit they were part of the problem. They wouldn't turn back to him. They hardened their hearts. And so Jesus was just pointing that out. So 
How did they welcome that good news? They grabbed him, they pushed him out of the synagogue, like, I don't know if you ever had anybody do that to you. I actually had people do that to me before. And now they didn't take me to the brow of a cliff to throw me off, but I got pushed out of a, a, a place. They took Jesus up to the edge of the cliff. They were going to throw him off the cliff. What they do is they didn't have in that area, there wasn't like huge cliffs, but there was like a little drop. And what they do is they throw you off 20, 30 foot drop and you're stunned and they start stoning you. They just pick up rocks and start stoning you and finishing the job. If the fall doesn't do it, the rocks will finish the job. Now, I don't know if you get the picture here. They're rehearsing the crucifixion. You know how I tell you, every passage you look at, you can see the cross in it. But it isn't his time. And so, I think they got him to the edge of the hill. It's not his time. He just turns, looks at him, just walks back through him. And I think they just kind of like, oh, now, they're doing this on the Sabbath. They're driving him out of a church service where they just read the Bible. This person who's been healing people and raising the dead, casting out demons, doing good. So, in the argument about who's the problem in the synagogue, I think we've resolved who's the problem in the synagogue. The whole synagogue. All of us. All of us. Yet... It's such an amazing picture is that it wasn't like Jesus didn't know that when he went into his hometown synagogue. It isn't like God doesn't know who we are already. But he still comes there and says, I'm ready to provide for you. To provide this jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, that's a perpetual experience in your life. But it comes through me. It comes through me. That's what Jesus is saying. So, our takeaway here, I mean, this story, it's like one of those simple little stories. Is Just don't act like them, right? It's not, it's not a real, uh, i got to sit and figure this out. There's a, it's a mystery what the lesson is. It's like, don't be like the synagogue. Don't make the mistake they made. But we do, don't we? That's why we keep writing articles like this. The author of this article is looking around and saying, i got to help these people who are perfectionists to keep doing the same stupid things. This is what they could do that would make their life better, but this is, this is bootstrap counsel. What Jesus did is he said, you need someone, you need a power outside yourself that will help you to not be your own worst enemy. And so what you have to do is you have to decide not to double down. And the way we double down on when we hear the truth is we either attack it and attack the person that spoke the truth to us, right? Anybody ever been in an argument with a friend or a spouse or somebody, and they make a good point, and they tell you, you know, they show you how you're wrong, and you know you're wrong, and you respond by doubling down <laughs> and getting angry at them and attacking them. And you walk away later and go, why did I do that? They... It was hard for them to say that to me. And then I punished him for saying something that was good, that was true. And I proved that they were wrong, which is what happened here. Jesus proved they were wrong through their reaction. Or we can do something that, which is more insidious. Instead of attacking, we just avoid. I'm just going to avoid. I just won't deal with it. Thank you, talk to the hand, right? And that looks so polite. It, it just looks so wise. It, but it's, it's a wisdom that's foolish. Because the only real way to respond to the truth is accept it. Don't double down by attacking it and making excuses. Don't double down by avoiding it. And just go, I'm just going to go my way. That's just unpleasant. I just don't have time for negative people like Jesus, you know? I, 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 I can, I, my world is bigger than that. You know, I can envision a world that Jesus uh, is not there pointing out that I'm my own worst enemy. But Jesus is pointing it out in this, this humble, broken, simple way that's the only way that we're ever going to welcome the truth. 
is if it comes to us in, in this person of Jesus. And so, let's just close with this. Instead of doubling down with control, which is attack and avoid, double down with vulnerability, which is surrender to the person of Jesus again and follow him. That's what he's inviting them to do. He just says, stop fighting me. Start following me. Stop fighting me. Start following me. Surrender to me. Surrender to my words. Surrender to my will. I will empower you. It will, it will be amazing. Uh, uh, some things in our lives don't immediately change. But the, as we keep following Jesus, they start changing if we follow him. If we hear his word and we stop fighting it and we stop avoiding it and we welcome what he, the grace he offers us because he was there in the synagogue as surely as I am right now speaking to all them and he's saying grace is here through me. At this moment, just come and begin to follow me. He was constantly saying that. Believe in me. Follow me. Yield to me. Listen to me. Depend on me. Not the law. Not the religious system that pointed to me. That's obsolete now. Now, we all have systems that we use to make our lives work. Maybe another kind of faith system. Another kind of religion. Maybe you're, you know, I don't believe in God. I don't believe that there's any greater than, that we're just an accident here and we're sorting our way through life. Well, that's, that's your own system. And Jesus just says to you, let go of that. It doesn't work. People who are humanists, there is some logic in humanism, but it doesn't measure up. I listened the other day to a guy on YouTube talking to a young college student and trying to, the college student said, I don't, I don't believe that there's anything that's really right and really wrong. I just think it's opinion because I don't, that would mean that there was a God and there was an objective right and wrong. And I don't believe that there is a God of any kind. And so there's no objective right and wrong. And so this person just was having a little back and forth conversation. So sexually abusing children, like you would be against that, but you would say still that's, that's not wrong. He said, yeah, I wouldn't. I would, in fact, I would try to stop someone from doing that. I feel like it's wrong. It, 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 and he goes, I just think you shouldn't do that. Like he, he said, I think that's wrong. And he goes, oh, I just think you shouldn't do that. And so this, the person that was interviewing him just took him through situation after situation. And like one professor at University of Texas says, there are certain things that you cannot not know. They're unavoidable truths. Some philosophers call them natural law. And he said, at a certain point, he got him in this corner. He got him to a, log a point logically where he, he couldn't stay in this position. Because the, the guy knew, I really don't believe this. Uh, this is, I, 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 don't, I don't want to admit that I believe in God and that all these things that everybody knows are right and everybody knows are wrong are really right or wrong. I can't live in that kind of a world, but I admit now, at the end of this conversation, this little five and a half minute YouTube video, I should show that to you sometime, but he just said, ah, he just did that. He went, ah. So the guy said, so you do believe there really is right. Some things are really right, not just circumstantially right, they are right no matter what. And some things are really wrong no matter what. And the guy goes, and he had painted himself into this corner. And he just said, ah, ah. And you could see him. He didn't want to accept the logic of his own conclusions. So all of our narratives come to points like that. The narratives that we live by in our lives, what we use to make our lives work, all these little God substitutes, Jesus is the fulfillment of that if we will just come to him. If we will just turn to him. If we will just not double down on attack and avoid and control and become vulnerable and surrender ourselves to this person. You're not surrendering yourself to a system. You're surrendering yourself to a person. So I want to close and uh, just, just pray for a minute. And Shannon, are you still here? Shannon, could you just play... Pleasantly, your guitar. <laughs> Not that you never 
play and it's not pleasant. Didn't mean it to come out that way. But I want to ask you, this is, there's the same microphone drop moment. Today, this is fulfilled here. Jesus has made it possible for there to be a perpetual jubilee. That debts are canceled. Servants are freed. Property is returned. That this is what Jesus suffered and died for. So all the stuff that we mucked up, all the consequences of that, which are inescapable to us, end in Him. And we get to start over again and again and again. We don't just get a second chance. We get to start over again and again and again. But we get to start, start over with this person who lives in us, Jesus, this person who made it possible. He doesn't just give us those ten wonderful, insightful things that we should do that leave us, I'm a perfectionist, man, I'm going to freaking blow it. It's starting at number one. I don't even want to look at the article. Jesus says, it's not like that with me. I am gracious. I am grace. This person of Jesus. So I want to ask you, I want to pray through a couple of things here. A couple of needs. Uh, there's some of you here, you got issues where you just need to feel that God forgives you. You know, there's just ways that you've acted out, things that you said, stuff you haven't done. And you, you're, you're just stuck in this self-defeating I'm my own worst enemy cycle. And forgiveness is what starts to break the power of that. But sometimes we just feel ashamed. And I'm not going to, I'm going to ask you to stand up, but I'm not going to ask you to tell anybody what it is. But I'm going to ask you to, to acknowledge it to God just by standing up and saying, yeah, there's a self-defeating cycle in my life I need forgiveness for. And you may feel like right now I know I'm going to go do it again. And you've got to give that to the Lord too and say, Lord, I'm stuck in doing this, and I want to see the power be broken in my life. So I just, I'm going to pray for you, and, and I, I believe you're going to experience his forgiveness, and you're going to, that forgiveness is going to be the catalyst to change, because it's mercy. It's not your willpower. He's not looking for these, yeah, I'm just looking for some really people who will gut it out for me, right? He's not. He's looking for people who will be vulnerable to him. He already did all the gutting it out. On the cross, his, the power of his life will come into you and you will be able to do things that you haven't been able to do. But it starts by being vulnerable first. See, it's upside down. It isn't this. It isn't apply the 10 good, wise bits of counsel. It's come to the person. And then you'll be able, those things will make sense to you. Those things will be something that will be helpful to you. We gotta get the, the, the horse before the cart, though. So that's one. Two, there is some of you here that you need to experience the Father's love in your life. That you need to experience being loved by God. We all need more of that in our lives. But that's, that's one of the. The year of Jubilee made people feel loved, they knew. God knows how hard it is to be in debt. God knows what it's like to be a servant that can't ever get a day off. God knows what it's like not to have things that are precious that you lost. Because he cares enough to, to restore those things to me. And being loved is like, it is the most fundamental offer of the gospel. God says, I want you to know you are loved, period. Mic drop. We are constantly avoiding asking God, do you love me? Even though we kind of know he does up here because we feel like there's all these things in our lives that disqualify us from being loved. Because other people have withheld love when we act in certain ways, right? The gospel says God doesn't withhold his love. If you will just open your heart up, he will pour his love out into your heart right where you are. And then you won't, he won't leave you where you are. That love will begin to be a catalyst for you to grow and change. But it comes to this person, Jesus. So second thing for you to stand up for. Third thing, healing. Because the cool thing about this Isaiah, his take on 
the law of Jubilee was he added to it. He added to it the blind will receive their sight, meaning all the physical illnesses that afflict us, that, that the kingdom of God that's going to come through this Messiah, that God has answers for that. And I wasn't here last week, but two weeks ago, when we did a little, a little prayer time, one of the guys, uh, I said to you, I said, is somebody here? God's healing your knee right now. And uh, the, he texted me after church, and he said, man, my knee has been in so much pain. And he said, there's no pain at all. It's totally gone. And I ran back, I said, test it. See, he, tried, he writes back, it's no pain at all. And he's in a, he's in a profession where, you know, his mobility, is, is, his job is impacted by his lack of mobility. And he was just blown away. He says, like, nobody even prayed for me. It happened. So I think during worship and during the teaching, there's a couple of you here that, already been, that God's already touched you. I think there's somebody who you've had some pain, like right in your abdomen, right in this area, that that, that pain's gone away before anybody prayed for you. And I think there's people here that came in with bad headaches. And I think if you, if you just stop for a second and go, I think the headache's gone. When did that happen? It was the Lord. Second, okay, uh, I'm going, no, no. Uh, the blind thing. If you have eye problems, it's a specific promise of the passage. We're going to start there. If you have eye problems, Whatever kind, cataracts, you name it, things that, I don't know what that, that thing, where you have pressure, the wrong kind of pressure in your eyes. What is that? Glaucoma. If you have glaucoma, we want to pray for you. Uh, if, you're, you know, if you're losing your sight, there's, I, I, I have a sense that maybe there's somebody who has a, a muscle problem with one of their eyes, or some kind of problem with the, the, the muscles in their eyes. We want to pray for you. And then last of all, I think somebody this last week, here recently, a doctor told you you're going to have to have ankle surgery. And we want to pray for you. I, think, I really think the Lord's going to heal you. And I mean, I, I'm not going to tell you about it. I heard of one of the coolest healings. It's only happened one other time in our church in the 35 years of our church. I just heard of the most amazing healing that I can't tell you. I, I apologize. It, it, it just can't right now. But it's the kind of healing that the, the news would pick up on if, 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 if people heard about it. God heals and I'm not saying that to hype anything. I didn't pray for anybody. I just heard about this. I was out of town. Uh, so if any of those things fit you, stand up where you are right now. So I want to receive the Father's love. I want to receive forgiveness.